Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 207. <laughs> Bienvenidos, bitches. Buiti binafi. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims. Because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. Uh, and these crimes rarely get any public attention because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. She is an ally and a (laughs) co-conspirator. I like it. I like it. (laughs) Thanks. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. All right. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about Reginald McFadden a black man who was imprisoned for a murder he committed at the age of 16. Then he was released after 24 years, only to commit a series of other murders in the span of three months. All right. Well, this is a hell of a story. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right, you know, keeping it together. Keeping it together. Yep. Yep. That's the speed I'm at. Yeah. I always say I'm trying to. Yeah. Wait, I'm just waiting for the year to end. I get like that every time this this year. Summer's over. Fun is gone. We're not allowed to have any more fun for the rest of the year. (laughs) We're just waiting for the clock to tick out until January 1st. No, (laughs) no. (laughs) I've been sitting in this room. I haven't seen my family for days. I'm just waiting for January. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, things are good. Let's see. 
oh, okay. So we got these chickens and the chickens are not going to lay eggs until uh, for a long time, like until they're a year old. Yeah, they got to be adults first. I didn't expect it to take that long. I'm like, <laughs> where are the motherfucking eggs? Uh, we got these chickens. How long does it take? It takes about a year till they're like okay. fully mature. Okay. But I'd never had a f- like an egg from a like straight from a chicken before. Only right. ever had like grocery store eggs. Yeah. So I tried an egg from a chicken. And the taste is I mean, chicken eggs have been this delicious my whole life. <laughs> if you get them from a chicken like fresh, fresh eggs fr- that came right out of a chicken's ass are so fucking good i was like because old whitey does all the cooking it's like did you uh, what seasonings did you put in these what is this and no it was real fresh eggs oh my god and they last a long time you don't have to put them in the fridge oh my god it's life-changing so anyway we're turning into little farmers over here but uh, waiting on some fresh eggs in the meantime i made do and found some other ones from another person with a chicken and they were amazing try it Get into it. <laughs> um, and this has been Foul Corner. Farm Corner. Yep. With Wendy and Beth. Okay, let's get into some listener letters. All right. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. If you're going on, I know some people listen to us when they're on their walk. If, you, if you're walking, when you hear that song, just take a deep breath. Ah, in, out. Yeah. yeah. Ah, yes, hold, and you are enough. What's in that bag, Beth? <laughs> Well, we got an email from Angela H., who's a Patreon and a Day One Fruity. Woo! Burr, 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 yeah. burr. Thank you, Anj. Uh, Hip Hop Air Horns, as soon as I can find it. And she gave us a suggestion for a shout out, and it's called Closet Confessions. It's my new favorite. They're my best nice. friends. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll get into it in the shout out <laughs> Okay. And then Steve E. emailed us with a suggestion for a case which looks really fascinating. I just yeah. put him on the list and I might move him closer to the top because uh, there's Cause Frank Steve Lloyd Wright so. and a yeah. whole bunch of shenanigans. Yeah, yeah. looks looks awesome. Fascinating, yeah. yeah. Beth is going to have a heck of a time. I'm going to have a great stuff. time She loves that. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also join us on patreon where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content and we have a video club for 12 plus patrons where you can interact with us in person that's right no new patreons this week let me just double uh checky check nope double no, triple check nobody new, nobody new and that's okay we love our new Patreons, our old Patreons, our day one Patreons, the people who hate our guts, <laughs> never want to hear us again. We love you anyway. Um, the show would be nowhere without our Patreon. So we love all yeah. of our supporters. Yep. Let's take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. 
That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Okay, we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Our subject today is Reginald McFadden, sometimes called Pennsylvania's Willie Horton, because like Horton, he committed murders after being released from prison, which sunk the aspirations of a politician. Yeah, that tough on crime stance doesn't, if for some reason it doesn't track well, if you're not tough on crime, good luck winning an election if you are if you are not tough on crime is what I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah, yeah. But it all has to do with the news being racist. So yeah. let's get into some love and light. Love and light, everyone. We want to say that this is true crime. True crime is true for somebody, including these victims that we're going to name. And also we want to say love and light to the family members, loved ones and community left in the wake of McFadden's heinous crimes. So the victims are Sonia Rosenbaum was 66, Margaret Kierer was 78, Robert Silk was 42, Donna Blaze DeMarco was 41, and Jeremy Brown, who is a female, my understanding is how she identifies, and is 55 years old and survived her encounter with McFadden. So rest in power, kings and queens. And now let's get into the setting because context and history are important and we're going to get into it. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania from the late 1960s to the mid 1990s. The territory known as Philadelphia is on the ancestral land of the Lenni Lenape indigenous people. It is estimated that the indigenous people were there 10,000 years before European colonization. William Penn was granted a charter by the King of England. Don't know which one, George, Henry, I don't know, one of them, to (laughs) colonize the land that belonged to and was already occupied by the Lenape. In 1683, the Lenape signed their first treaty. Chet Brooks, a member and historian of the Lenape tribe, referred to it as the treaty that was never ratified, but never broken. And I can't tell if that's good or bad. Maybe it's just indifferent. Um, (laughs) William Penn presented the Lunape with the treaty and kept the commitments outlined within it. 
So that's good. They, he did. They didn't reveal all the terms. You mean to tell me? <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but his son Thomas tricked the Lenape into giving away their land. So not good. Mm-mm. The tribe was forced to move west in what has been known as the Delaware Westward Trek. Most of the fifteen to twenty thousand Lenape people did not survive the trek. That's interesting. I mean, we we hear about the Trail of Tears, right? That's right. I think the most famous forced migration of people from their ancestral homelands to somewhere where white people thought they... A reservation of some kind. Yeah, type. a reservation yeah. of some kind. But I'd never heard of the Delaware Westward Trek. Yeah. So I That's thought that a new was one. really interesting. Yeah, new one. Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love and that Denzel Washington movie that one time. Philadelphia has a deep history of abolition. In 1775, Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense, an essay advocating for American independence, penned the essay African Slavery in America, in which he called slavery an outrage against humanity and justice. Where's the lie? Yeah. No, thank you. That's my <laughs> friend, everyone. Wow. Beth, give her a round of applause here. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Where is the lie? Snaps. Snaps for Beth. <laughs> The city was home to the Quakers, members of a Christian denomination who believed that slavery went against the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Again, where's the lie? (laughs) No, don't see one. None in sight. The Pennsylvania Abolition Society was founded by white Quakers in 1775 and eventually became a biracial organization. You love to see it. Yeah. In the 1770s, Philadelphia became the center of the American Revolution as the site for the First and Second Continental Congress, as well as the signing of the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the writing of the U.S. Constitution. While the American Revolution did not liberate all enslaved Africans living in the U.S. colonies, by the end of the Revolutionary War, Philadelphia had only 400 enslaved people, while its free black population had grown to over 1,000. The causes of this transformation were multiple. Some supporters of the revolutionary cause came to recognize a clear contradiction between their calls for liberty and the practice of slavery. Again, no lies detected. Others (laughs) grew to see slavery as a violation of deeply held religious beliefs. The Revolutionary War also presented opportunities seized by African-Americans across the region. And I think... You know, we talk about humanization of marginalized folks, people of color, LGBTQ folks. It is easy to treat people like dirt if you don't see them as human beings. Yeah. And the struggle continues. So anyway, I just uh, the people who were enslavers claim to be Christians. So how do you reconcile Christianity and owning human beings? That doesn't make any sense. So if they're not human, then we can own them. Problem solved. Also, they had a different slave Bible. So Bibles that were read to the black enslaved people were different from the Bible that white folks read on Sundays in their churches. And the slave Bible omitted all of the slave revolts because there was slavery in the Bible, murder and war in the Bible. But all those all those scenes are not included in the slavery ones in the the enslaved Bible. So anyway, wow. Sorry, that's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so back to the Revolutionary War. There Black we go. people served on both the Loyalist and Patriot sides. Many supported the British Army as the most likely agent of emancipation. Others supported the Patriot cause in hopes of turning the American Revolution into a war for emancipation. 
Still others took advantage of the chaos of war to escape. You go. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it. what I'm just trying to stay alive. Who's yeah. going to help me do that? That's who I'll join. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not complicated. No, not at all. <laughs> Philadelphia was also central to the Underground Railroad, which helped free enslaved African people. The city aided people who escaped chattel slavery, and those people were deemed fugitives, and was home of the founding of the African Methodist Episcopalian Church by Richard Allen. But although Philadelphia has a legacy of abolition and criminal justice reform, the 20th and early 21st centuries of Philadelphia history have also been marked by corruption and heavy criminal punishment. Former police commissioner and mayor known to fellow cops as the General, uh, Frank Rizzo, uh, <laughs> had a brutal and racist administration mm. that the city is still grappling with to this day. Rizzo infamously once said that the Black Panthers should be strung up. Oh, God. Yeah, he didn't mince his words. I know, think I know what he means by that. And throughout yeah. Rizzo's career, his work was marked by the attacks of Black liberation groups, including the Move Group, which we've talked about before. Yeah. But let's get into it. Yeah, let's talk about that again. Yeah. In 1985, under Mayor Woodrow Wilson Good Sr., the first African-American mayor of Philadelphia, Move was once again targeted by law enforcement. On the evening of May 13th, the police dropped a literal bomb on Move's new headquarters. It, it was a bomb. Like, yeah, they didn't just we're not. It, this is not. It wasn't an accident. <laughs> yeah, no, they, no. Yeah, Government sanctioned murder of citizens is what it was. And there's a really great documentary called Let It Burn that chronicles this event, the events leading up to it. There's news reports of the escalating tension between police and the residents and then the eventual bombing. And then the survivors, one of them was a child. And he oh, was God. interviewed as well. It's 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 Let horrific. It OK, I'm, I'm going to put that on our list of videos to watch. Yeah, it's really good. I know I shouted it out before, but we weren't doing video club then. Right. But it's really great. So they knew that the building was occupied by men, women and children. The building went up in flames, destroying 61 homes, killing 11 people, including the founder of Move and five children. And when you hear when you watch the documentary and hear about what they tried to do to survive, like they had buckets of water in the basement mm. and were trying to keep the kids wet, but they still didn't survive and leaving over 250 residents homeless. Wow. Only move members survived. And by the way, did you say two? Only two move members survived. Yeah. OK. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, uh, Questlove from The Roots. The Roots are from Philly. And Questlove's house was on the same street as the oh, wow. Wow. house. So. so did Questlove live there at the time? I believe that he did, but I believe his home was unscathed is my understanding. Hmm. But he lived in the same wow. area as move, move Home. Wow. So Philadelphia has been described as a microcosm for complex issues of criminal justice reform in the country as a whole. The future of criminal punishment and the criminal legal system in Philly and the U.S. are complicated and evolving. Yeah. And just when it couldn't get any more interesting, Kim Kardashian's in the conversation. So we'll get into that later. <laughs> a couple of famous folks from Philly, because Philly, I mean, I've never been to Philadelphia, but everybody I admire from Philly, I was like, there must be something to the place. Like, and people from Philly love it so much. So there's Quinta Brunson, Dick Clark, Mark Lamont Hill, Tina Fey, Kevin Hart, Billie Holiday, Meek Mill, The Roots. Patti LaBelle, M. Night Shyamalan, and Henry Box Brown, who during the enslavement time, he was a man who escaped freedom by mailing himself 
to abolitions, abolitionists <laughs> in Philadelphia. And I love that. I love Doctor that story. It's a really yeah. good kid story. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so that's Philly in a nutshell. Let's get into the early life of Reginald McFadden. Hit it, Beth. Reginald McFadden was born into poverty on February 23rd, 1953 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was one of 10 children, and his father abandoned the family a few years after he was born. Reginald's mother began living with a man named James Woods. Woods was physically abusive towards all of the children, but according to Reginald, he was his stepfather's favorite person to beat on. Woods once beat him with an electrical cord until he ran away through the snow to his grandmother's house, halfway across town. He spent most of his time at his grandmother's house, who cared for him. In the early 1960s, Reginald dropped out of school and started spending most of his time on the streets. So the 60s was a crazy time for, I think, any American alive. I mean, I wasn't alive then, but I can imagine being a young person, just like watching the world around you. There's war. Leaders are getting assassinated. Civil protests, rights. Yeah. Protests. It just must have been a really wild, yeah. wild and difficult time for young people. So yeah. together with his older brother, Gordon and Victor, he joined a street gang. From the early 1960s through December 1969, McFadden and his brothers were arrested by authorities a total of 17 times for various offenses. So let's get into the timeline. Splish splash. <laughs> in November 1969, McFadden, who was 16 at the time, was arrested in New York City on a charge of car theft and taken to the county jail. But his bail was paid by his mother, who then brought him back to Philadelphia. Went to the bar on the county jail. Then, on December 7th, McFadden, along with three other teenagers, 15-year-old William Jones, 13-year-old Robert Forbes, and 17-year-old Curtis Woods, went to Winfield, a middle-class neighborhood in Philadelphia. There, they broke into the apartment of 66-year-old Sonia Rosenbaum. They forced Sonia to tell them where she kept her valuables, which they took. She was then bound with adhesive tape and cords from her blinds and gagged with a washcloth. They left her naked on the bed beneath a blanket and fled in her car. Sonia suffocated and died as a result of the gag placed in her mouth. Oh, my God. That's awful. Yeah. McFadden's accomplices were taken into custody and they implicated him. About 4.30 a.m. on December 11th, the police went to the McFadden residence to take him into custody and search the house. When the officers knocked on the door, McFadden's mother opened an upstairs bedroom window to speak with them. She told officers that she would come down to open the door, but that Reginald was not home, since he was incarcerated in New York on a stolen car charge. She then went to the bedroom where McFadden slept, informed him that the officers were there to arrest him, and told him to flee. Mm. McFadden went out an upstairs window onto a porch roof, but was apprehended when he jumped to the ground then brought inside the house and placed under arrest. He was then handcuffed to a chair and left with his mother in the living room for approximately 10 minutes while the officers completed their search of the house. During their search, officers found jewelry and a number of other valuables that were later identified as belonging to Sonia by her relatives. They also found more than $600, which neither McFadden nor his mother could explain the origin of. McFadden was taken in for questioning and was questioned for approximately 30 minutes during which time he maintained that he was in no way connected to the Rosenbaum crimes. However, during this interview, two gang control officers entered the room and informed McFadden that his accomplices had confessed and implicated him. Got him! <laughs> 
Within the next 15 minutes, McFadden admitted complicity in the burglary and gagging, but his details conflicted with the statements of his accomplices. And I couldn't find more information about that. Hmm. He was then charged with first-degree murder, burglary, aggravated robbery, larceny, and conspiracy. I'm assuming that when the young men left the home, they didn't know that they had killed her. So I don't think so. I think yeah. they left her thinking that she would not die. Yeah. yeah. But they did some awful things. Yes. Following a jury trial, McFadden was convicted of the murder as well as lesser crimes and sentenced to life imprisonment. McFadden later said that at the age of 16, he had to, quote, grow up overnight in prison, unquote, but learned how to survive and resisted efforts to, quote, turn him into a homosexual, unquote. Okay. Okay. (laughs) He earned his GED and took college correspondence courses with the ambition of becoming a counselor to youths from troubled backgrounds like his own. He said, quote, I wanted to do something with my life. I wanted to go out and counsel youths, become a child psychologist. I believe I had a lot of raw material for that, unquote. McFadden converted to Islam in prison and garnered the backing of Charles Campbell, the 71-year-old owner of a small Manhattan Islamic bookstore from which McFadden ordered books. Campbell supported McFadden's campaign to win commutation for over 16 years. So he worked on trying to get a commutation for this guy for 16 years. Yeah, That's incredible. That's a long time to hold it down for somebody. Right. And continue to support them. Yeah. Yeah. So at one point in this young man's life, it was believed that he was redeemable. Yes. Yeah. And we all And he had supporters. Yes. Campbell, along with retired school teacher Paul Ehrlich, Paul's wife Isabel, and others, were members of a loose-knit Islamic group known as Irfan which means knowledge in Arabic, which was interested in the rehabilitation of prisoners. Members of the group corresponded with McFadden, talked with him on the phone, and traveled to Pennsylvania to meet him. They were convinced of the sincerity of his conversion to Islam and his rehabilitation. They pledged to support him through his reentry to society. At the time, Pennsylvania was one of a few states that sentenced convicted murderers to life imprisonment without parole. But to give its 2,600 lifers some hope and to ease prison tensions, Pennsylvania let convicted murderers apply to the Board of Pardons for commutation. The board would then make a recommendation to the governor. Between 1991 and 1993, nine commutations were granted. We've talked about this before, that there should be a remedy for when people are no longer a threat, right? A commutation is when you're still convicted, but you get to get out of prison early. Right. So your sentence is shortened. Yes. But it's an interesting idea. Like, I wonder I wonder if anybody in the meeting was like, um, excuse me, uh, did you say release murderers? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have a couple questions. Yeah. In early 1992, as he had done seven times before, McFadden filled out a clemency questionnaire that listed his past crimes, the reasons mercy was warranted, and the names of willing sponsors. In the section about what he had accomplished in prison, He mentioned his GED and college credits earned, as well as certificates in haircutting and tree surgery. So he's given the appearance of somebody who has learned new things, new skills, things that can be translated on the outside. Right. And that application was supported by statements from a half dozen psychologists, the sentencing judge and correctional officials at some of the seven prisons where McFadden had been held. 
They praised his role in calming a riot at Camp Hill, Pennsylvania in 1989 and for his conversion to Islam. Ronald J. Harper, a member of the Pardons Board, later said, quote, from an application perspective, it was about as good as we could find, unquote. The board listened to a corrections department advocate for McFadden and to an opposing statement from the Philadelphia district attorney. The board never, ever, 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 ever interviewed <laughs> McFadden because its policy discourages meetings with applicants. Some officials say this tradition is an effort to save the expense of transporting prisoners, while others trace its roots to the 19th century when inmates bought their freedom by bribing government officials. Either one or both sounds they plausible. They both suck. Yeah. yeah. Both <laughs> but they sound options. plausible. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and on August 27th, 1992, the five-member parole board voted four to one to recommend commuting McFadden's sentence. The one holdout on the board, Attorney General Ernie Priet, later said in an interview that he thought that McFadden was, quote, manipulative, telling people what they wanted to hear, unquote, and that he was too young to be trusted not to revert to crime. Hmm. Well, if you set him up for failure, sure. But, yeah. you know, when he gets out and he's able to get his basic needs met, housing, food, income, then it shouldn't be an issue of him reverting back to crime. But we see so often that people don't even have access to the basic things when they get out of prison. Yeah. No place to live. You can't, you know, there's so many rules on where you can live and who you can live with and what you can do. And then people are discouraged from hiring people who have a yeah. criminal record. So if they can't get a regular job, what do you think they're going to do? <laughs> like, yeah. What, yeah. How else are they going to get money and survive? My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows true terrors of horror bizarre happenings unexplainable events on our podcast disturbed terror takes center stage each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence delving into bone chilling tales of kidnappings serial killers maniacs and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay
stay safe out there. To make sure that he acclimated himself to life on the outside, the board required that McFadden live in a supervised work release program for two years, such as a halfway house, that is locked at night. The decision was then forwarded to Governor Bob Casey Sr., who did not sign it until the summer of 1994, almost two years later. Unfortunately, the documents from the pardons board were confusing. Hmm. The board said McFadden's minimum sentence should be commuted to 24 years a period which expired in December of 1993. The recommendation then sat on Governor Casey's desk until he signed it on March 15, 1994. Mm. Several months of the delay were attributed to Governor Casey's convalescence from heart and liver transplants. Wow. Wow. That's, Whoa. Yeah. That's a lot. That's that a lot. is a lot. Yeah. But in such a high position, shouldn't there be a backup? Yeah, there should be. Yeah. Okay. I don't know anything about government, y'all. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a, a podcaster. <laughs> but whatever the reasons for the delay, since his minimum sentence expired in December of 1993, it was believed that McFadden had to be released promptly. And the supervised work release program and halfway house never happened. So on July 7th, 1994, Reginald McFadden, who was then 42 and had never lived on his own as an adult, was released from prison after almost 25 years of incarceration. Since McFadden would be living in the state of his sponsors, New York, he was released to Rockland County in New York. He was released to unfamiliar suburban New York terrain and placed in the sponsorship of five well-intentioned but inexperienced volunteers, three of them over 65 years old. Ooh, Pennsylvania Attorney General Ernie Priet later stated that he was, quote, dumped into the lap of a retired New York teacher who was unprepared and unable to handle him, unquote. Charles Campbell said that he could see McFadden struggled with life on the outside, quote, much like a stubborn teenager resisting parental control. It was as if he went back in time once he got out of prison. He was a case of arrested development, a 16-year-old mm. in a 41-year-old's body, unquote. Yeah, I've heard men who are incarcerated when they're younger Describe that in that same way. They're stunted. That, yeah. yeah, that they're a boy trapped in a man's body with that yeah, same they never got a chance that they to went grow into. Up. Yeah. Right. McFadden's supporters had not expected that he would be sent to New York directly from prison without spending any time in a pre-release facility. I didn't expect that either. But they found <laughs> him they found him an apartment in Nyack and someone gave him a 1977 Cadillac. Wow. Uh, <laughs> glow up alert, which required expensive repairs and put him under financial pressure. But it probably looked really cool. <laughs> <laughs> At first, McFadden worked in Campbell's bookstore, but he quit after a few days. It's been reported that he left because its small quarters felt like a prison to him. Hmm. But McFadden himself claimed that the owner, Charles Campbell, was a dictatorial manager who got angry when he chose to move Korans disrespectfully from the shelves directly near the floor to a higher level. But uh, we, don't, we don't know the veracity of that. Right. He also said Mr. Campbell once called him a bastard, a searing insult that he compared to a, quote, knife in the heart, unquote, because his parents were not married. But was it though? Yeah, a knife in the heart. Was it? Um, did it? When you consider really a the insult? subsequent <laughs> events, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that tracks. Yeah, 
um, it just, it's some of the things that this guy says. You just want to do this? Shut up! Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I get triggered because my brother does stuff like that. He just like, he says, I don't even know why he does it, but he'll yeah. say things like this, like just make a big deal out of something that, I don't know, maybe this guy was really offended. I don't think that Mr. Campbell called him a bastard. Yeah, oh, you don't? <laughs> I don't think it even <laughs> happened, but. Yeah, he does make Mr. Campbell out to be a very not a very, nice man. Yeah, he's an asshole. Which is totally but, possible. But, but he worked 16 years to get this commutation for mm-hmm. McFadden. I, right, I don't and know. hired him when yeah. I wonder who, if anybody else would have. You know, right. yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. So I don't know if it's fair. But anyway, um, <laughs> McFadden found a second job at a basement shop in Madison, New Jersey, that sold foods that met Muslim dietary standards. But he also quit that job, he said, because the store was riddled with health violations. Again, ev- oh. everything is everybody else's fault. Oh, yeah. 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 That statement made it very clear. Yeah. Also, when they got to the part of the story where they were like, he worked at a bookstore and he was a serial killer. I thought of the program You on Netflix. Oh, right, <laughs> right. Joe worked at a bookstore. Yeah. And bodies in the basement. Anyway, um, <laughs> totally fiction. So on September 6th, 1994, Robert Silk, 42, went missing from Elmont, Long Island. Robert ran a computer business from his home and was described by friends as a good Samaritan, the kind of person who would go out of his way to help others. It is believed that McFadden's car had broken down in an Elmont supermarket parking lot and that Robert offered to help him. McFadden then beat Robert to death for his car, which was later abandoned in Nyack. McFadden was later captured by security cameras withdrawing money from multiple banks using Robert Silk's ATM card while driving his car. Oh, my The audacity. Yeah, but that's just, I mean... I feel so terrible for this gentleman who yeah, just wanted to help him. Just wanted to help him. Yeah. And golly, it's just so nasty. Ugh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't, it's just not sitting right with my spirit. Yeah. On September 21st, 1994, a 55-year-old woman named Jeremy Brown was raped, kidnapped, and robbed. She was living alone in Nyack, New York, in a little house that she had bought after she divorced. Her daughter, Samantha, lived there with her for a year or so, working and saving money for graduate school, but she moved out at the beginning of September. It was the first time in Jeremy's adult life that she was living alone. On the evening of September 21st, McFadden attacked her from behind outside of her home while she was taking out the trash. (gasps) Wow. Yeah. That is scary. By the grace of God, there go I. That's one of those. Right. Over the next five hours, he repeatedly raped and beat her before driving her to an ATM and making her withdraw money, which he stole along with some jewelry. He left her lying on her bed, hands and feet bound with tape, but alive. And she survived. Amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. On September 27th, Margaret Kierer, 78, a retired blood bank employee, was murdered near her home in Flora Park, Long Island. Margaret was described as an independent woman who, despite her age, often took trains to visit New York City. That's awesome. Yeah. 78 years old and just living living her best best life. life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She particularly loved going to the opera. Margaret was raped, stabbed, and beaten to death after getting off of a train a few blocks from her home. 
That I mean, she's so close to I making know. it home. Yeah. Her body was found tied up and stuffed into a garbage bag. What a monster. Yeah. McFadden was later seen on security camera footage using Margaret's ATM cards to remove cash. I'm guessing while he was locked up all that time, he didn't know about cameras at ATMs. Yeah, but... security cameras yeah. and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so now let's get into the investigation and the arrest. What the what, Beth? The police linked these last two crimes together because both of the victims were bound and gagged in similar fashion and because both victims' ATM cards were used after the crimes. McFadden was identified from photographs taken during the ATM transactions. McFadden had found a job at the Edwin Gould Academy, a residential school for youths in the foster care system in Chestnut Ridge, New York. Although he said that the job turned out to be rewarding, it lasted only seven days because he was arrested. They got him. How did they even get a job like that as a ex-convict? Well, I know that those like residential schools for youths, people don't like to deal with kids who are in need like this in in the foster care system. So it's I am they'll hire under anybody. The yeah, that they'll hire anybody. Wow. But I also imagine That's that if scary. he was hired and he was a convicted felon, that maybe he sold it as I can be an example of a success yeah. story. I'm to sure the kids. he did, but still. Yeah. Yeah. yeah still. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. I totally get it. So, anyway, he only had that job for seven days, but it was great, <laughs> he said. It was great. It was a great job for seven days. Great time. Yeah. <laughs> McFadden was arrested on rape charges after a car stop and chase on October 6, 1994. Police found jewelry belonging to Jeremy Brown and Margaret Keirer in his possession at the time of his arrest. He'd been out of prison for only 92 days. That's not long at all. Not at all. No. Yeah. I've had diets that lasted longer than that. <laughs> After that, he said his Muslim associates turned away from him completely. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> you don't say. Uh, the, the sponsors later said that they did not know McFadden any better than the pardons board. Dr. Isabel Ehrlich, a 67-year-old psychotherapist, said, quote, We really didn't know him before he was released. And we had very little contact with him after his release. I met him and there was something I didn't like. I saw more to him than I had seen before, unquote. And it took a doctor to say all that? There was something about him I didn't like and I saw more than I had seen before. I saw more to him than I'd seen before. I don't know what she means by that, but... Yeah, just like before when he was in prison, she saw oh. one thing and then okay. outside oh. of prison, she saw something else. Okay. Yeah. But also she she sold... She's, Showed the carceral she system. She sold seashores. Yes, by the seashore. Yes, with Cecil. Yes. And then on top of that, she also showed the whole carceral system's ass by saying, we didn't know him. We don't know what happened. We didn't know him before. We didn't know him after. We just, we, we didn't we know. We don't know what's happening. Sorry. Not my problem. <laughs> the Rockland County District Attorney said authorities believe that from statements McFadden made, that there could be other victims who were killed during the three months between McFadden's release from prison and his arrest on October 6th. Yep. Totally believe that one, too. Yep. On March 10th, 1995, the decomposed body of Robert Silk was found in Rockland County. And on March 27th, McFadden was indicted in Robert's murder as well. 
state agencies in Pennsylvania blamed each other and sometimes New York officials. Hmm. McFadden accused his patrons of mistreating him, abandoning him, and even suggested that they may have played a role in his undoing. What? <laughs> when asked if he was guilty, he said, quote, I associated myself with people who may very well be, and that guilt has showered on me, unquote. <laughs> wow. wow. And he blamed a Muslim's conspiracy. Wow. Okay. So no self-reflection at no, all in there. None, none okay. whatsoever. Nope. Interesting. Well, okay. Let's get into the trial. So during the rape trial, McFadden defended himself, mm. even cross-examining Yuck. victim Jeremy Brown, which is disgusting. Yeah. And I know, I, I mean, I, I guess the court has to allow it, but it seems so like abusive it does and, and i like, mean i can't imagine make her that, go through that yeah she uh i have so much respect for her yeah yeah a hero indeed yeah but at, sometime in august of 1995 he was found guilty of rape robbery and assault telling his lawyer to quote get it over with unquote mcfadden pleaded guilty to cura's murder the following month McFadden was sentenced to two terms of 25 to life for the murders and 37 and a half to 75 years for the rape and kidnapping to run consecutively. As part of his plea, he waived his right to appeal. Because his New York convictions breached the terms of his commutation, McFadden was still subject to a life sentence in Pennsylvania for the murder of Sonia Rosenbaum. So he ain't never getting out. Not a never. On uh, March 26, 1996, the skeletal remains of Dana Blaze DeMarco, a 41-year-old Rockland County woman, was found near a highway overpass in the village of Chestnut Ridge. Dana was described as peaceful, solitary, and nomadic. Uh, she was an artist with no permanent address. Dana graduated from Spring Valley High School in 1972 and then spent many years afterwards hitchhiking around the country and for a period traveling to Africa. Occasionally, she would stay with a relative in Rockland County. McFadden was the prime suspect in her murder, but was never tried for that crime. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia... Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. All right, so now let's get into where are they now? Well, McFadden said he was not particularly upset about being back in prison. Uh, this just in from uh, McFadden, quote, this has been my life. My life has always been this way, unquote. He also said, quote, there are a lot of Reginalds in prison. These people are going to come out someday, unquote. And then McFadden, <laughs> isn't this ironic? He died on March 6th, <laughs> 2023 at age 70 at the Wenday Correctional Facility in Alden, New York. After McFadden's conviction, Jeremy Brown, who survived McFadden's attack, 
revealed her identity, which had been kept confidential Mm -hmm. previous to then. And uh, she subsequently became an advocate for crime victims. I think that is remarkable when when people are able to do that, take their pain, awful thing that happened to them and turn it into a triumph um, and help other people. Remarkable. McFadden's arrest had an immediate impact on the gubernatorial election. In 1994, the same year that McFadden was released from prison, Mark Singel became the Democratic nominee for Pennsylvania's governor. His opponent, Republican U.S. Congressman Tom Ridge, seized on Singel's vote in favor of McFadden. Ridge adopted the slogan, Life Means Life, and ran a series of ads depicting Singel as soft on crime for voting to commute the sentences of lifers. McFadden has been called Singel's Willie Horton. A note on Horton, during the 1988 presidential election, Horton became a central figure in George H.W. Bush's campaign and a way to imply that his opponent, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, was soft on crime, emphasizing Bush's support of the death penalty. I remember when I first saw that Willie Horton ad in yeah, me too. Uh, social studies yeah. class. And I was the only one who was like offended. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The other kids oh were like, God. we're not seeing the problem here. So anyway, oh my God. Uh, I but, remember it live. I remember when oh, it really? was all happening. Yeah. What emotions did it? Because it's meant to scare the shit out of white. It made me angry. Yeah. yeah. It made me angry. Yeah. Yeah. Because I um, could see the racism. Yeah. And were you voting age at that time? Yeah. So what'd you do with all your George H.W. Bush bumper stickers? <laughs> I burned them in the trash. <laughs> Just kidding. I know you didn't do that for you. Never. I would never. <laughs> uh, so despite the fact that William Horton never even went by the name Willie, he was called Willie Horton throughout the campaign. Wow. The renaming of Horton, who is black, has been viewed as the product of racist stereotyping. It show is. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that his name wasn't even Willie. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is pretty blatantly racist when yeah. refusing to use somebody's, somebody's name right. actual yeah. full name. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even think about that. So thank you so much. This has been illuminating. And this has been Fruit Loops. The show comes out every Thursday. Bye. Anyway, Horton was convicted of murder and incarcerated at a Massachusetts prison at the age of 23 with a life sentence. He was serving out his time in prison until he was approved for the prison's furlough program, which was not unusual at the time. But while he was out on furlough, he escaped and committed more crimes, including robbery and rape. His case stoked a debate on whether criminals should be allowed temporary furloughs from prison. A prominent PAC ad for Bush about Horton has been widely characterized as a textbook example of dog whistle politics. The ad used Horton's mugshot, and he became part of an infamous election season strategy to stoke fear and racial anxiety among white voters. And it worked. Yeah, it worked. It worked. But anyway, back in Pennsylvania, Tom Ridge won by over 200,000 votes. Singles' defeat and Ridge's election were catastrophic for lifers in Pennsylvania. The conditions of their incarceration were harshened, and the possibility of release through commutation all but vanished. As governor, Mr. Ridge nominated Martin F. Horn to be commissioner of the Department of Corrections and made good on the promise to convene a special legislative session on crime. Oh, boy! (laughs) which resulted in significant changes in the commutation process. 
Foremost among them was the provision that commutation of life sentences requires a unanimous vote of the board. Therefore, any board member has the unilateral power to veto any applicant. I don't like that process. Mm -mm. In 2020, Kim Kardashian, an advocate for prison reform, met with then Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, I'm a fan of his, who was working to reform the state's commutation process. Kardashian said, quote, um, I think everyone is aware of the potential risk of somebody coming out and committing a crime. So I'm very mindful of that. Millions of people are behind bars that just don't deserve to be. There just has to be a balance. There has to be a better system than what we have now, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> so Kim this Kardashian. might be one of the only times I've ever agreed with Kim Kardashian. <laughs> oh, Brad. She's a billionaire. <laughs> I actually don't know much about her at all. So oh. I do know that she is an advocate for prison reform. Yeah. Yeah. And which that is cool. We can get down for. Yeah. I wonder if she'll be a crime con. See you there, Kim. Uh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get into our takes and our thoughts and feelings about this case. What do you think, okay. Beth? Well, obviously, his early life was a factor. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't great. Totally. Nope, yeah. nope, not not great. But a lot of people don't have great childhoods. That's don't true. And don't murder anybody. Yeah, true that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if McFadden could have been rehabilitated. Yeah. But if he could have, it mm -hmm. would have been when he was 16 years old when he was first convicted. Mm -hmm. Putting a 16-year-old in jail and then letting him percolate in that environment for 24 years did not help. It's a mistake on their part. Yeah. It, it seems it's like definitely part yeah. of the state. Yeah. And they're pushing more and more for minors to be charged as adults and putting them into adult prison. I think mm -hmm. it's horrible. I don't I agree think it is it. horrible, but by that's that's not new, especially if, when we're talking about BIPOC. Folk. Oh yeah, not Being new for BIPOC as, as, kids. as children. Yeah, yeah you're but right. it is you're right. it is something we should generally we should all be ashamed that we would yeah. treat children this way. Yeah. So sending teenagers to prison and expecting a good result is dumb. <laughs> Thank you. That's just dumb. <laughs> Thank you. That's my wise friend. <laughs> I think they thought he'd just never get out and they didn't care. Right. Right. Once the door, once they lock that gate or doors yeah, or they're like, bars, bye. They're, bye, yes. yeah. wash their hands. Yeah. But if there's any chance someone could be let out from prison, we need to think about what we're doing to these people. Yeah. To me, it's not all about punishment, especially mm -hmm. if we expect some of them to reenter society. We need yeah. to do better. Yeah. I think McFadden said, I mean, people get out. So, what, yeah, there's you know, more Reginalds there in there. There has to be something yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. That said, this guy was awful. And some of the yeah. things that he said really triggered me, my stuff with my brother, you know, stuff right, that my brother right. would say, twisting yeah. things around and nothing was ever his fault. Yeah. And I think Attorney General Priet was right. When mm -hmm. he said that McFadden was manipulative, telling people what they wanted to hear. I think so I think too. he was. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I also thought that it was interesting that he chose older people to victimize. Reportedly, right. the only one in his family who cared for him was his grandmother. Right. So I don't know what that's all about. He huh. may have targeted older people because they were more vulnerable. Or they may have been stand-ins for his mother or grandmother. I, I don't know. Yeah, I just yeah, thought it was interesting. 
I agree. That is an interesting thought. We'll never know because he's dead. Dead. Yeah. Also, he would never tell us, probably. You don't think so? If no, Barbara Walters I don't think, was like... No, uh, he'd okay. lie. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. He would yeah. to make us seem like we're crazy for thinking We're the weirdos and bad. he's... Yeah. He would never do anything bad. Disorder? Yeah. When you... Um, I mean, narcissism can be inward. a part of psychopathy. I wonder mm-hmm. if he's a psychopath. Oh, good question. Well, if he wasn't before he went in, certainly was he, after. He was after, certainly, yeah. Cer- yeah. Yeah, certainly some... Uh, I think that, uh, I, I don't know that much about when our personalities get set. Fully formed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like jello. You know? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think about myself when I was younger and uh-huh. I was a completely different person. Could yeah. Than yeah, I am totally. now. So totally. I, I don't know. And we're products of our environment, right? So if yeah. you go into a violent place where you're treated inhumanely, when you get out, how do you think you're gonna view other human yeah, beings when right. you get out and treat yeah. them? So Yeah. Yeah. I think prison has always been a place where we put people who committed crimes and did things that Ooh, society doesn't like it. Ooh, that's awful. Get that out of here. And we just put people in there, set it, and forget it. Yeah. But you can't do that with people. <laughs> yeah. And I think the conversation about like what justice really looks like and victims and rehabilitation and the carceral system have evolved and become louder in recent years, which I applaud and I think is wonderful. In this case, it seems like the people in charge were aware something has to be done. Let's just put together this uh it's like they paper mache a parole a parole board and it didn't go far enough. You know, not interviewing the person who's actually seeking the commutation seems like a big mistake. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a good idea at all. Yeah, but I totally understand wanting to vet somebody before they get sent out into the world. And so I'm all for that. It just seems like they didn't go far enough. Yeah. And I think, you know, what McFadden did is disgusting and awful. And I think what Willie Horton did is awful. And those people should be held accountable for what they did to innocent people. My heart goes out to all the victims in this case and everybody left in McFadden and Willie Horton's wake. We should do an episode on him, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should. He's not a serial killer, but uh, we've done episodes that are not serial killers before. So I think we could squeeze it in. Yeah. Absolutely. It might might be fun to go back and do the most racist news events <laughs> um, around most racist to, crime like, stories election. of all yeah, time. Yeah, be our election special. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Just a thought. Um, so we lock up a lot of people in this country more than any other country on the entire planet. And so I'm sure there are positive stories of people who despite the odds after getting out of prison, do good things. And I, I, my wish is we hear more about that so that as a collective, as a society, we can see it's possible. Here's what's working. Here's what's not. The examples are out there. I've seen them. I just wonder why not everybody has seen them. Yeah. And there's also um, systemic factors that lead people to commit crimes or be seen as criminals in the first place. And then they get wrapped up in the system. You know how it goes. But it is really difficult once after we take all those steps to lock somebody up, rehabilitate them and get them out. Once they're out, what happens then? Right. They reintegrate into society have, and have to live. And so what are we going to do to make sure that that can be done so people don't have to revert back to crime? Right. So anyway, I thought that this was a very interesting case. 
And I love when we get to take a, a look at carceral systems and where things may have went wrong. So thanks for, yeah. thanks for being my friend and, and talking well, thank about you. this. Thank you. Thank you. This was awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bye. No. Oh, look. <laughs> not okay. yet. Not yet. <laughs> Wait a minute. Time to, well, not to get murdered. So <clears throat> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> This segment was not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So my tip in general is that we need to all commit to keeping something on us that can be used as a weapon. I'm going to shout out a couple products I found my ET protection on TikTok. They're a small defense business and they're run by a black woman, but you can go down this whole deep dive of safety products for women or for self-defense. And they include, you know, those cute kitty knuckle keychains with the bedazzles oh, yeah. on them. Yeah. Um, and I know in the past we've used tips of using your keys as weapons, right? Putting right. them in between your fingers, but your keys can slip and they can drop. So these kitty knuckle keychains are really cool. I'm just shouting out this one TikToker's name, but these products are available online and they're all like 10 bucks and you can get like a whole kit and caboodle uh, full of tasers and kitty knuckle keychains and all kinds of You're making them sound really fun. It does. And I'm telling you, these uh, TikTokers know that we love this content because they're colorful. They look beautiful. They look like candy. And they're <laughs> weapons. I just like, awesome. I'm getting so giddy. <laughs> but I think what we should commit to is just before we go out, make sure you have something on your person that can be used as a self-defense tool. Oh, and then there's fun things you can do with these keychains, like put them around your wrist. So you get into the Uber, you got, you got the kitty knuckles ready. And then they have these key fobs that look, they look like key fobs, like the kind for to get into your car, but they're actually tasers. Zip, zap, zip, zip, zip. Um, yep, they look really, really cool. So that's my tip. Commit to before you leave your home or your car, making sure that you have one thing that can be used as a self-defense tool. I even saw some women using dog leashes as weapons, taking it off and then swinging it around really fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or using a dog chain as like an impromptu get the fuck back weapon. Um, <laughs> so anyway, just commit to having something on you nice for safety that's why I, I like it all right oh look there's more show now <laughs> it is shout out time where we shout out any content by people of color or any othered folks or any true crime goodies and these are from straight from the fruity's mouth y'all from our foodie <laughs> angela h by the way Ange, thank you so much for your nice words she said she loves us uh, by the way, I love you guys so much. I look forward to hearing your podcast every week. No lie. Well, thank you, Anj Panj. So the podcast is called Closet Confessions, and it's a podcast by two Black British women. They are so funny, and it just feels like hanging out with your girlfriends or your cousins and just talking about whatever. They were talking about, you know, children on planes this last episode I listened to, and I was just 
cackling. Like <laughs> it was just fun. It's it, fun to be in conversation, but not. That's why I love podcasts anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Like listening to like a, yeah. Yeah. A fly on the wall. Exactly. And so yeah. if, if you are a black woman and wondering where are my people at, this is a good place. So closet confessions nice. is a great podcast. And then there's another podcast that we got from a fruity on Instagram. The podcast is called Nightlight Horror Stories. So it's horror stories written by Black authors and performed by Black actors. Nice. So it is so good. I It's just in time for Halloween and like That's awesome. Yeah. So what do you got? Well, I wanted to shout out another sci-fi show on Apple Plus. Girl, you are getting the most out of that Apple subscription. I know. Okay. Apple Plus is hitting them out of the ballpark <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so the uh, show is called Silo. Okay. There's only okay. one season, 10 episodes. Okay. But I loved it. Just loved it. It was it's a great. sci-fi show. Okay. Sci-fi show. Yeah. I binged the hell out of it. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And then I wanted to shout out Matthew Yee on TikTok. His handle is at M-C-Y-E-E-E, I think. Maybe might be four E's. I don't know. (laughs) But his name is Matthew Yee. And I believe he's indigenous. And he does outlaw country covers of popular songs. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And they're really good. And he's very handsome, too. Like, he does a lot of Prince covers. Oh, yes, he is very handsome. Okay. Yeah. A follow. <laughs> you just got a Wendy and Beth follow on the TikToks. Okay. Let's see yeah, you. so check it out. I love it. I love a man at guitar. Yeah. All right. So that is a podcast called Closet Confessions. Also a podcast called Nightlight about horror stories. And a sci-fi show on Apple Plus called Silo. As well as a content creator that we should follow named Matthew Yee on TikTok, and they go by at McYee, Y-E-E. There might be four E's. (laughs) Oh, wait, I'm wondering if there's three or four. Can you check? There's four E's. Four E's. Okay, four E's. So Matthew Yee at M-C-Yee, four E's. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, well, that's the end of the program. Um, I have to go to sleep, but <laughs> okay. uh, in the meantime and between time, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five star review. Five stars only, please. Five stars, please. (laughs) (laughs) Also, don't forget to subscribe. It helps us a lot. Yeah. That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
my dog. Oh. I gotta. He makes this noise. He was <laughs> he was doing that at me, so I thought he had to go out, but then he wouldn't go downstairs. So I don't know. All right, he's doing it again. I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> all right. Okay, I'm back. Is Sid all right? Yeah, Is he's Sid all right. To to <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Her daughter, her daughter, oh. her daughter, her daughter Samantha lived with her with her with her for about a. Oh my God! What calm down. happened when you went away for a uh, minute? I don't know. <laughs> Catastrophic. 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 Where yeah, am I? What not am I saying right now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's okay. Yep. Okay. Oh wait! Oh, so no, I didn't. it's me. Oh, oh, oh yeah. did you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ernie Priet, 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 Priet. 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 She is an ally and a co-conspirator. <laughs> now my dog's knocking at the door. <laughs> Your dog knocks. Oh my god! Yeah. It's like Jurassic Park. I let him in, the and then I went in my room and closed the door, and now he wants in. Hold on. <laughs> oh, my God. So hopefully he doesn't want to go out again. Hey, it's going to be okay if he does. We forgive Sid. We <laughs> believe that all living beings deserve to use the restroom once in a while. Everybody poops. Exactly. Just like Tim Allen told us. Oh, gross. <laughs> he wrote that book. Tim Allen? That's what I've been telling myself for the past 30 years. Hang on. <laughs> Everyone. Who's the author? Carol Gomi. What? This whole time. <laughs> <laughs> guys I don't know out. where you got Tim Allen from. I, I hate Tim Allen. I do too, but I thought he wrote this book to remind us all that we all poop, that we're all the same. <laughs> what? <laughs> This is, I've been Mandela affected. Oh no! Bernstein bears, Bernstein bears. I was. I just looked up Tim Allen to see if there was a book that was like similar, but there's nothing. I mean, he's got a couple of books, but none of them have anything to do with pooping. Wow! This whole time. Oh my god! I've yeah. I just got Mandela. You just been Mandela. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> oh man. Okay. I'm well, so confused. Forget I said any of that. All right. Where are we? I have no idea. A prominent pack? Oh, uh, something about pooping. Boy, oh boy. That was a tangent. And this has been Fruit Loops. The show comes out every Thursday. Bye. Anyway. The detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, Is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Something is creeping in.
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.